0: The scripture reading for this morning comes from John chapter 4, verses 4 through 30 and 39. <clears throat> Verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? This is God's word.
1: For the past month, we've been looking at the gospel according to John. And and John, we said, is really the best friend of Jesus, the one who Jesus loved. And so John's book teaches us who is Jesus Christ. It is a single most important question throughout all of history, the centerpiece of history. And it's a single most important question that we need to ask ourselves. Who is Jesus Christ? We said in chapter 3 that we have Nicodemus. He's educated. He's wealthy. He's a respected and respectable male. And he's a ruler. And he's in the in crowd But this passage, the immediate passage afterward, we see an uneducated, poor, outcast woman with no rights, and yet Jesus says, really, you're in. You're on the inside. How does that happen? The woman wanted to know, how do I quench my thirst? I'm thirsty. How do I quench my thirst? How do I experience new life, a refreshing life in a way that's going to shape my life? And Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God. What he's saying is you need to know this. You need to understand. You need to think about this. Know what? The gift of God in this passage is living water. What is living water? Jesus says this is the key to renewal. This is the key to new life. What is water? Water cleanses you. When you drink water, it refreshes you. It heals you. It gives you a life. It renews. It quenches. There are three lessons today we're going to learn about water about new life. They're synonymous, new life. He says, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born of the water and the spirit. They're the same thing. Three things about water. One, the gospel gives us a new agenda. Two, gives us a new life. Lastly, gives us a new love. The gospel gives us a new agenda because it gives us a new life, because he gives us, Jesus gives us a new love. First, the gospel It gives us a new agenda. The woman says, why are you talking to me? What are you talking to me for? The disciples come later on. They see Jesus sitting and talking with a woman, and, and they're amazed. It says They're surprised that he is talking to this woman. Why? Because he's seated. He's sitting down, and he's talking with a woman. In ancient times, unlike today's progressive education, modern education, in ancient times, you had rabbis. The teacher would sit, and the disciples would gather around the rabbi and learn. That's what would happen. And so the disciples would gather around. Disciples, they were known as the people of the dust because they clung so tightly to their master, to their rabbi. As the rabbi would stand and walk and teach, the disciples would gather around and stick as closely as they can to the discipler, the teacher, the rabbi, that they were called the people of the dust because as the discipler would walk, the dust from his sandals would get on the disciples. And you would know how close the disciple was by how closely they walked with their teacher. But rabbis most often would sit and teach and here's jesus because Je- rabbis would never teach women rabbis would never teach women not in those days women had no rights they had no social standing they had no educational status and so for a rabbi to sit and talk to a woman the disciples are surprised they're looking at him they're surprised the woman was surprised that he's talking to her because he's seated in the position of the rabbi as a teacher But what's even more remarkable is rabbis would never teach, you would never see a rabbi alone with a woman. It was dangerous. It was risk. Women could only bring you down in those days. But here's Jesus intentionally going, in verse 4, he had to go to Samaria, intentionally going out of his way to meet and to talk and to speak and to teach and bring new life to a woman. And so not only is he teaching this woman, this woman is becoming a disciple. He's actually speaking alone, in privacy, tremendous intimacy and trust. And on top of that, it's a Samaritan woman. Why was a Samaritan woman alone? You see, just as we see in today, water is needed for everything. Water is needed for cooking. Water is needed for cleaning, for bathing, for drinking. In those days, women always, they were, the irrigation systems were poor. So women had to walk great distances to do their cooking, to get water for their cooking. They had to go to these nice fresh wells where there were springs, where there was water that was fresh and clean for them to be able to use. And so women would tend to get up early in the morning, walk great distances with these jugs of water, these heavy jugs of water that would last them through the day with each other. But this woman waits to the sixth hour, which is really the hottest time of the day down near the equator area of, of, the, of the Middle East. And she waits to the hottest, day of the hottest time of the day to walk alone. No one was traveling with her. She didn't want to travel with these other people. Why? It's because we know, that, and Jesus says, you've married many men, and the man that you're currently with is not even your husband. So this woman was really like the town prostitute in a sense And so people didn't want to walk with her, and she didn't want to walk with them. She's a social and moral outcast. She's outside of every ring, outside of every circle. She's outside of every racial circle, gender circle, societal circle, moral circle, religious circle. But Jesus says, I came here for you. You're in. You're on the inside. He travels to Galilee, And it says he was passing through Samaria. He could have gone around. Actually, it was was actually the more direct route was to avoid Samaria, but it says he had to go into Samaria in verse 4. That means he's crossing ethnic boundaries. In verses 6 to 7, it says he sat down, which means that he's a rabbi, and he's teaching a woman. He's crossing gender boundaries, social boundaries. In verse 7, it's a Samaritan woman that we learn that she is. Samaritan's considered half-bloods, they were impure, which means he's crossing cultural boundaries. In verse 9, Jews, he says, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Why? Because there were religious wars. Today, the greatest wars in our country are fought on religious grounds. And yet, he's crossing these religious boundaries. In verse 18, he says, The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you're currently with is not even your husband. She's an adulterer. He's crossing moral boundaries. After Jesus' death, after Jesus' resurrection, if you think about who would you have to script out as the first people to come to witness the event of the resurrection, who does Jesus choose? He doesn't choose a governor. He doesn't choose a politician. He doesn't choose an educated, wealthy man because they had social standing. A woman's testimony wasn't even admissible in court in those days, and yet the first people to arrive at the tomb of Christ to see the empty tomb and to speak about it was who? It was women. Mary Magdalene. A woman's testimony not even admissible in court. They had no rights. You know, on one hand, what does this teach us? First of all, look at the grace of God. Look at the compassion of Christ. Look at the inclusivity of the gospel. On one hand... Jesus Christ is more conservative than today's conservatives. He sits there and he's questioning directly, a woman he just met directly questions her marital quality, her sex life, her morality, her heart. And yet on the other hand, Jesus is more liberal than today's liberals. Why? Because he goes to an educated, moral man and says, Nicodemus... You need to be born again. What you've studied doesn't matter. What you know doesn't matter. You need new life. But on the other hand, he goes to this woman who is a moral and social outcast. He goes to her. He intentionally goes to this woman. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He goes to this woman, and he says, you're a disciple. You're on the inside. That's amazing. Look at the compassion of Christ. Look at the inclusivity of Christ. That teaches us a new life, living water. It's not based on achievements. It's not based on your merit. It's not based on even your morality. Because this woman, if, that were, if any one of those things did matter, she wouldn't be in, but she's on the inside. Think about this woman. She doesn't pray. She doesn't go to the well seeking God. She doesn't go to the well seeking, expecting to see God, expecting to meet Jesus. In fact, if anything, she's running from the l- religious. She's running away from those people. Jesus says, you're coming for living water. Does the woman say, yeah, you're right. I've been searching for this all my life. I need this. Please give it to me. No. She just came for running water. She just came for water, water to drink. There was no intention. You don't see anywhere in this text in the beginning that she had any intention to meet God. And yet, what does Jesus teach her? There is no ethnic boundary I would not cross for you. There is no cultural boundary I would not cross for you. There is no gender boundary or risk that I would not take for you. There is no social risk I would not take for you. There is no religious risk I would not take for you. There is no moral boundary I would not cross for you. He had to go to Samaria. He went out of his way. He crossed every boundary. By going out of his way into Samaria to meet with this woman, he was crossing every boundary. The gospel gives us a new agenda. If you see Jesus crossing every boundary for your sake to meet with you today, you would be convicted and compelled to cross every boundary to meet with others. Why? Why would you do that? It's because the gospel gives us a new life. Brief summary, verses 4 to 7. Jesus is on his way to Galilee, goes out of his way, goes into Samaria. It's the sixth hour, right around noontime. And at that time, at the same exact time, the Samaritan woman is is really taking, starting her day and coming in to draw water. And you see from verses 7 to 26, this conversation, which actually when you read it, literally seems incredibly choppy to us. There are a lot of parts of this that don't make sense to us, but to Jesus and this Samaritan woman, the conversation makes absolute sense to each other. They're dialoguing. They're jiving with each other. They're tracking with each other. Jesus is saying, I am offering you. I would like to give you something more than just forgiveness. I'm going to give you a new life. I'm going to give you more than just a pardon. I'm going to give you a new life altogether, a fresh start. Living water means newness. Water means Cleansing. It's synonymous with the entrance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We talked about this when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus. He says, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, if you want to see, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. You need to be born of water and the Spirit. Water is synonymous with the Holy Spirit, new life in our lives. Jesus says, you need to be born of water and the Spirit. Now, we don't live in this climate like we do, like they do in the Middle East, So I'm willing to bet that there's not a single person in this room that's ever seen anyone dying of dehydration. But they say it's one of the most painful ways to die because our bodies in reality are made mostly of water. Mostly of water. So our bodies, even if you don't feel thirsty, our cells are constantly craving for water. Constantly, there's a tremendous need, constantly crying out for water. And so when you get dehydrated, it begins with headaches, moves into a dry throat eventually you eventually they say it turns into searing heat almost as if there's a fire inside your body and there's pain this torment this burning inside until finally your body just corrodes away and dies it's a very long slow painful death jesus says i have something that your soul needs even more than your body needs water why because the bible says That if God is not the center of your soul, if God is not at the center of your heart, that means you're going to place any other belief, whether it's your relationships or beauty or money or something material, those things will easily take the center of your heart. Then you're going to be thirsting. Now, you may feel quenched for a little bit but it's, you're going to feel quenched the way your body drinks salt water. It feels like it's something that's going to quench your thirst, but in actuality, it's going to make you thirst even more. The Bible says you're, you will thirst, your soul is going to corrode, there's going to be fire inside that cannot be quenched, and you're ultimately going to die. You're going to burst into that thirsting forever. You ever read the picture of Dorian Gray, Oscar Wilde, philosophical novel, very, very deep philosophical novel. I'm not going to tell you what the story is about, but I'm going to highlight just a few points in this story. You have Dorian Gray, this handsome, ruddy, beautiful man who believes that life is all about beauty. Whatever form of beauty you understand And so you need to pursue it. And through a series of of events that take place in his life, over time what happens is he decides to live a debaucherous life. Dorian Gray, this beautiful man in which a portrait, the artist paints a beautiful portrait of Dorian Gray because he's so beautiful, he's so handsome, and yet he decides to take that beauty and use that to oppress other women because of a series of events that take place in his life, and so he goes into a life of cruelty and wickedness and debauchery and licentiousness and hedonism and drunkenness. And he does this up until really he dies. Oscar Wilde is saying that if you pour your life into anything, including something like your own looks, something as simple as your figure, your soul will corrode, like that picture of Dorian Gray, until Dorian Gray himself wastes away. I'm going to say it another way. If you place your hopes of a good life into anything other than Jesus, any other beauty as opposed to his beauty, any other achievement as opposed to his own finished work, any other richness apart from the richness of being hidden in him, any other relationship, other than the intimacy of being known by Him. The Bible says you will inevitably and surely and certainly thirst. It is a promise. You will never be satisfied. You will constantly be craving. Meanwhile, what happens is your soul is thirsting. It's going to continually corrode until eventually you waste away. That's basically what's going to happen until life becomes a corroded life. But in verse 10, Jesus says, If you drink, of him in you will become a spring of life welling into eternal life on one hand you will thirst into a corroded life until you burst into corrosion altogether on the other hand if you drink of him your soul will well up as a spring until you burst into a spring of eternal life do you see that two very very juxtaposed types of lives and he's not talking, because he's talking to an immoral woman, he's not saying the Christian life is necessarily living a better life, living a moral life. A lot of times when we think about living water, we think, oh, this means I'm going to live a more moral life. It's not less than that. Absolutely, it means that your life will be changed. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not the newness he's talking about here. If your hopes in life are not placed in Christ. What Jesus is saying is that that means you're going to place your life, your emotional life, your psychological well-being, your physical well-being, everything that you've got in your person, your emotional faculties, your psychological faculties, right, your, your financial faculties, economic, right, everything, your social faculties, everything is going to be centered around other hopes because we're built that way. We're built to worship. That's called worship. When you place all of your faculties into something, you're worshiping that thing. And so, in, the, in a given moment, if it's all placed in a relationship, and that's, that's a risky thing because, you know, if you think about it, our relationships, it's broken people coming together with other broken people, and that's never a positive thing. That's always a dangerous thing. But when you do that, you're worshiping. And that means there's this burden that starts to develop in your heart because all of your hopes for significance and meaning are placed into a job. And the thing is, when you lose that job, what happens all of your hopes, your significance, and your meaning go away. If all of your hopes for intimacy are placed in a person, well, then what happens is when that relationship falls apart, or even if it's altered a bit, then your hopes for intimacy will die. If it's placed in purpose and meaning and significance, when you lose your job, when you lose your friend, when you lose your salary, what happens? Life is going to fall apart. And that is what Jesus means when he's saying you're going to be thirsting. The thirst is knowing that there's despair, hopelessness because I've lost everything. Now, relationships are difficult. They're great, but they're difficult because they're not going to quench your thirst. But we think, we're so, we, we so much want to believe that one relationship is going to quench our thirst. But the problem with relationships is the person that you're in a relationship with, whether it's a friend or a significant other, they're not always going to be accepting of you. You're going to fight at times. You're going to disagree sharply at times. And if you place your hope in a given relationship, it's going to kill that relationship. It's going to kill that marriage. Because your expectations that are built up into that relationship, when they fail, the pressure and the burden that falls on that broken person who's never meant to satisfy you in that way to begin with it's going gonna, it's gonna to kill that relationship. It's going to kill that marriage. It's going to destroy your children. Think about it. If you place your hopes of being acceptable and worthy and significant in raising a good child, a perfect child, a healthy child, and that child gets sick, you're going to blame yourself until death. If that child you know, turns out to live a, a bad life, what happens? It's going to be on you. You're going to feel like it's going to be on you. The pressure and the burden of being able to uh, raise a person into perfection, and yet we're all broken people. We're born this way. It is impossible. You're driving a 10-ton Mack truck over a bridge that can only hold two tons. It's inevitably going to collapse. And you're thinking, you're just hoping that you can make it across. And nine times out of nine, ten times out of ten, a hundred times out of a hundred, you will never make it across that bridge. That's what the Bible is telling us. That's what it's saying. In essence, your heart's going to go bad, and that's why we're always trying to control our circumstances. That's why we're trying. Most relationships operate manipulatively because we're constantly trying to fight and angle and jockey for position in a way to get over that person, to control that person, to manipulate that person. That's why we fight. That's why we use certain words that we know are going to get that person and trap that person. We're always doing that. Those are our relationships. Jesus, in verse 15, as he offers this woman living water, the woman says, I want this water. What does Jesus do? There's no manipulation. He's not conning this woman into new life. He's going to give her the truth because the refreshing in the new life doesn't happen without truth. And mainly what he says is, well, go call your husband and come back. Why? Because what he's saying is, the problem with you that you need to understand and trust and know, and we so desperately want to run. That's why we run. We run because of shame. We run because we don't want to face the circumstances of who we are. We don't want to face the reality of who we are. Jesus goes directly to this woman in his grace, in his compassion. We talked about his inclusivity, and yet he says, go, call your husband, and come back. Very pivotal part in this passage. The woman says, I have no husband. He says, you're right. You have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you're currently with is not your husband. What you're saying is true. The man you're with is not your husband. You're not married. I get it. You know, but your heart's gone bad. Your heart's gone bad. He gets to the heart of her thirst, what she's really thirsting after. He says, woman, you've had six men in your life. Six men, and you're here at the sixth hour. The number six is a number for imperfection in the Bible. Anytime you see the number six, it means it's incompletion, restlessness, sinfulness, brokenness. He says, that's where you are. That's why you're in the heat and walking here to get water. And you're thirsting on your way. And that's why you got six men, because you're thirsting on that journey too. And that's why we go job after job. And that's why we go friendship after friendship. When we cannot maintain these things, we want to control these things in our lives. That's why we're constantly trying to angle our way, deceive our way into things. Don't we do that? Come on, we all do that. Every one of us has something that we desperately want to manipulate to control so that when we have it, we can say, yes, I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm acceptable. I'm worthy. I have significance in life. But Jesus says, you are restless, woman. You are unsatisfied. You came at the sixth hour with six men. You are tired. You are hot. You are restless. You are sweating. You are working. Aren't you tired? That's really what he's asking. Aren't you tired? Because I can give you a lasting hope. I can give you a living justice. A lot of us pour into just wanting justice. But the justice doesn't come without fulfillment, and the fulfillment doesn't come without satisfaction and joy, a spring of water welling up to life. If you pile into yourself, if you pour into yourself, you're always going to be thirsty. That's what Jesus is saying. But when you pour into Christ, he says a spring is going to well up and overflow. Relationships stop being about you and what you get out of it, but what you give. No matter what happens, my life and my joy will bubble out. You can't stop a spring. He says it's going to be a spring of water welling up. You can't stop a spring. You can't stop a spring of water right? How do you know that Jesus is coming into your life? How do you know that Jesus is coming near into your life? I'm going to give you three things that we see here briefly so that you have an idea. When you put yourself into this story, you can say, maybe Jesus is coming into my life. Here's this woman. She's seeking everlasting love, right? That's why she's at the number six, six men. And actually, her life isn't getting better. It's not like the marriage is leading to a better marriage, which is leading to a better marriage. She's actually not even married, She's actually downgrading here. She's losing hope here. She's been pursuing love at great lengths, at great cost, cost of her reputation, cost of her religiosity, her morality. And Jesus is saying your pursuits have led to more thirst, no joy. You've been robbed and you're thirsting and you're tired alone. Today we hate being alone. But I'm telling you because we say we believe if you're alone, I feel like I'm cursed when I'm alone. In our world today, in this connected life that we live, but if you think about it, if this woman did not approach Jesus alone, the conversation would never have happened. If this person didn't come alone in her shame, in her brokenness, this conversation would never have happened. That's how you know Jesus is coming in. If today you feel, there are people here who feel isolated because they've screwed up. But if you think about it, for this woman, it's the screw-ups that got her alone. And, in, and her aloneness is what got her to Christ. And so that means that there's always hope. You never stop hoping. When you're successful, think about this. When you're successful, you always have people around you. People are always around you. It's almost like you're like a good luck charm. You need to be around each other. Right? You ever see Titanic? I've been watching Titanic's been on like nonstop for some reason on TV these days. In Titanic, you have these wealthy, rich, educated, powerful men sitting around together drinking brandy. Right? That's what that's what uh, 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 Rose Dawson says, or Rose uh, says later on. She says, you know, they're going pretty soon. They're going to go into that room and they're going to drink brandy and tell each other how they're how they're masters of the universe. Right? When you're when you're successful, people kind of congregate around each other around the success because they think they feel more successful when they're together. But when you screw up, you know, um, when you crash, you end up alone. When you're beautiful and you're young and you've got money, you've got lots of people around you, it's actually a very noisy life, if you know what I'm saying. But when things crash, you end up alone. And what Jesus is telling this woman is I will use even your screw-ups, even your isolation. To bring a fountain of joy in your life if you're suffering because you feel lonely you may be around a lot of people but you feel lonely and you feel alone jesus is at the well and you're thirsting will you approach the second thing that we see is there's this cadence between jesus and this woman the woman's asking questions He's responding. Jesus is asking questions. The woman's responding. There's this kind, it's not a banter. There's this inquiry, this genuine inquiry, genuine inquiry. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is teaching. We said he's a rabbi. He's teaching her. He's answering her. He's counseling her. Look at his gentleness. Look at his patience. He's not frustrated. He's not sitting here like sighing every single time. The woman, I don't understand. You know, first with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is asking, in Jesus' mind, very elementary questions. And to Nicodemus, he says, you are Israel's teacher. You don't understand this. And yet this woman is asking, how do I get water? I don't understand water. And he says, he just keeps going, keeps leading her. You see that? Look at the gentleness. Look at the patience of Christ. How do you know that Jesus is coming near? Things that seemed like banter to you a long time ago, things that seemed meaningless to you at one point, things that you used to hear all your life in the church, all of a sudden, starts to become important, becomes more important through a series of circumstances in your life. Why? It's because Jesus has you alone, and now in your aloneness, in your isolation, you're asking questions, real questions, genuine questions. And Jesus is present to answer. Just because you're alone, it doesn't mean that Christ has come near. A lot of us are alone, and it's our way of running from Jesus but when you're alone and you're asking and you have the word in front of you and you have people around you that you have access to, there's the possibility of inquiry and response. Community, very important. Lastly, in your inquiry, in your aloneness, Christ becomes personal. It's one thing to just ask questions. Lot, you know, As a pastor, I, I sometimes walk into a community group, sometimes have a Q&A session, Um, A lot of times uh, with university or grad level students, we have these Q&As. We'll be doing that here as well. But when we do that, people tend to ask lots of questions. You can be alone and you can be thinking and inquiring, but if you're asking just frivolous questions, questions that are not personal to you, questions that not talk about your sin, questions where Jesus is not meeting you in your heart, you are not meeting Jesus. You don't even want to meet Jesus. I'll say that. You are faking it. But when Christ comes near and you are broken and in a place where you're asking the real questions that matter because you've lost things in your life and you're hurting and you're losing and you feel like you're empty and alone, that is the key to the start of renewal. That is the key. There are people here who are experiencing that right now. There are people here who are right on the brink of that right now but that's what happens. Jesus is getting at the deepest pain, the deepest brokenness, the sin, the stuff that you've been hiding, which is why we sometimes ask theological questions because we're hiding behind our own inadequacy. We're ignoring things about ourselves that we need to address. We're not meeting Jesus at the well. Jesus is asking about the husbands in our lives, the things, the brides, the things that we cling to so closely as if we were married to them. That's what Jesus is asking. The shame, the deepest inadequacies. The woman says, living water, I want this living water. Jesus says, go, call your husband and come back. She says, you know what? Hold on a second. I'm not really spiritually thirsty here. Yeah, I can see you're a prophet. I'm physically thirsty, you see, because I do worship. You know, you guys, you worship over there in Jerusalem, but we we believe that worship takes place here. Don't you get it? Jesus says, no, 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 you are thirsty. You are dry. You are dying of thirst. That's why you need men in your life. Get, get on, I'm trying to get on your wavelength here. That's why you need the men. Because you think love and having men in your life, getting married and, and having that type of life, that's what's going to give you significance. That's what's going to give you a sense of worth. But you are going to all the wrong people and all the wrong places. You're leaning on all the wrong things. And you're using your sexuality as a way of reeling it in. And you're using these things and it's corroding your soul. You see, he doesn't say, you know what, woman, you need faith. The woman has faith. It's just placed in the wrong things. The woman says, you know, I worship here in this mountain. I have faith. He says, yeah, but you see, your faith is placed in all the wrong things and in all the wrong places. That's what he's saying. You're investing your worship in all the wrong places. You're drinking from something, but that something is like drinking from the sea. And so you it looks like it's going to quench your thirst but it's going to make you thirstier and thirstier and you're going to dehydrate and burst into flames you see you need a new center something that's going to motivate you a new motivational center The woman starts talking about this temple he says you know we worship here you guys say you need to worship over in Jerusalem Jesus says believe me woman a time is coming and is now come And he starts talking about worship How true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. Because God is spirit and his worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. He doesn't say you don't need a temple. I've abolished the need for temple. He says, no, you need the temple. But the thing is, you've invested in the wrong place, in the wrong temple. You're investing in all the wrong temples. These husbands in your life are the temples in your life, the center of your motivation, the reason why you're coming late in the day to avoid all these people living in sin, living in shame, is because you're pursuing all the wrong temples and men in your life. They're synonymous. Jesus is saying, I am the temple. You need a temple but I've abolished the need for all other temples because I am the true temple. You've gone to the wrong place. True worship happens in Jerusalem where the temple is. I am that temple. You just need to orient yourself again. You've oriented poorly and your life is spinning out of orbit and it's killing you. You ever see a planet spin out of orbit? Of course you haven't because we're still here. If this planet spins out of orbit, they say even a few degrees, all of human existence as we know it will end. That's what happens. The next two verses are the most remarkable. In verses 25 to 26, remarkable because it's going to give us all the assurance we need to have new life. The woman says, I get it, you're a prophet. I know that the Messiah called Christ the one who God has sent to redeem everything that is wrong with the world. I know he's coming. In other words, this woman is longing for that day when the one whom God has sent will come to renew the entire world, including herself. She says, I know. I want renewal. I need renewal. And he's the only one that can come and explain it all to me and bring it to my life. I get it. I'm waiting for that. That's what I'm longing for. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. An amazing phrase. The woman says, oh, I get it. You're talking about spiritual reality. Yes, the temple. I'm waiting for this. That's what I'm longing for. That's what I need. She knows that's what she needs. It's the seeds of faith, real faith, new life. She's living in sin, living in shame, and yet she's longing for the day when the one who will come to rescue her. Isn't that amazing? Even in her sinfulness, in her aloneness, in her thinking and responding and inquiring, as Jesus becomes personal, she says, yes, I believe, I know, I want this. Jesus responds in the Greek. He says, I who speak to you am he. In the Greek, it's the same phrase, I am. Ego me. That phrase when you translate into Hebrew is the same phrase when Moses in the book of Exodus, the second book in the Old Testament, Moses approaches God. God says, I want you to go to tell the Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. Free them so that they may worship me, which is really what's happening here. And, and, um, and Moses says, well, what happens when they ask me who sent you? What do I tell them? God says, you tell them I am. Ego eimi. Jesus says, I am. The woman says, I'm waiting for the Messiah, the one who's going to come to redeem the whole world. Jesus says, I am. It's a very, very specific phrase. Jesus is saying, I am that spiritual reality you've been craving. The reason why you're looking for all these men is because you're looking for me, the seventh man. Seven is the number of perfection, completion, rest. Rest in me. I am. I'm the reality you're craving. The reason why you're sleeping with these other men is because you lack an intimacy with me and you're still looking for them. That's why it's never going to end. You're looking for this man to give you worth. The only person who ever can give you worth is the one who is not broken, and that is me. I can give you love, a lasting love, and eternal justice. I will bring justice into your life in a way that will free you eternally. And it's real. I'm here. I am. The epilogue is amazing. Verse 28 to 29 and verse 39. The woman, the disciples come back. They're surprised that Jesus is talking and teaching this woman. But what does the woman do? That very thing that's causing the sag in her shoulders that made her labor and sweat, she leaves it behind. She leaves it behind and she runs back into the the town to the very people that she's been avoiding all her life. Why? Because she has new life. Because she has new freedom. Her thirst has been quenched. She left her water jar behind. The thing that's causing her fatigue, driving her fatigue, a representation of all the things, her shame, her looking for worth, She's got a new source of worth. She's got new life. She's got the cure. You know, the cure is love. It's not less than love. It's the right love, a greater love we so much settle for lesser loves in our lives we're constantly looking for husbands in our lives in the form of intimate relationships we're constantly looking for husbands in our lives it's not just women this is men We are looking. you can never truly be a good husband for that matter unless men you become a good bride of Christ first we're constantly looking to get married to something and we're looking for it in our jobs and our wealth and that's why we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people and where they are status wise versus where we are it's because we're looking for an ultimate status we will never be satisfied satisfied. This woman found a new source of worth, a new well that she has tapped into, a new life, a new refreshment. What does water do? A new cleansing, a new renewing. She's getting all these things, and it's pouring into her, and so she runs, and she's just compelled to go back to this town, this town that has rejected her, this town that has made her an outcast. She runs back and says, what? You gotta come. Let me help you. That's an amazing thing if you think about it. The gospel definitely transcends all agendas in our lives this woman who's been hurt by the town goes back to the town and says let me bring you something that's going to save you and what does it say many of the Samaritans in that town verse 39 came to know Jesus on account of the testimony of this woman come and see a man who has told me everything I've ever done could this be that one could this be the seventh man Friends, you have to make Jesus your seventh husband, your seventh man. It's the only way you're going to be able to rest. How does that happen? You've got to go all the way back to the beginning of this text. In verse 6, the entire place, the entire setting of this passage takes place in the context of Jacob's well. Who is Jacob? Jacob is one of, known as one of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament. Verse 12, the woman asks, Are you greater than our father Jacob? In Genesis, Jacob falls in love with a beautiful woman. Do you know where he falls in love with her? Her name is Rachel. He meets Rachel at a well. And uh, Rachel is this beautiful, ethnically pure. She's fully Jewish, sexually pure She is acceptable. She is acceptable. Jacob's father, it's not a a surprise to Jacob, Jacob's father, Isaac, also in the book of Genesis, prior to the chapters of Jacob, where did he meet his wife? He met his wife, Rebecca, at a well. Rebecca is beautiful. Rebecca is ethnically pure, fully Jewish. Rebecca is sexually pure. She is acceptable. Hundreds of years later, by Jacob's well, here is Jesus Christ seated and awaiting a woman. Jesus Christ is the greater Jacob. He's the greater Isaac. That's what this text is telling us. He intentionally goes to Samaria to meet this woman at the well. But this woman is impure. This woman is outcast. This woman isn't even ethnically pure. She is a mixture. She is a half-blood. She is unacceptable. Why does he do this? Jesus is the greater Jacob. He's the greater Jacob because he can do this. He makes the unacceptable acceptable. He makes the impure pure. That's living water. That's new life. You can't work hard to get there. If you're working hard to get there, you're not there. You'll never get there. You will always be thirsty and right back where you started. Broken in sin. Jesus Christ comes to make the impure pure, to make the unacceptable acceptable, to make the ugly beautiful. That's why the Bible's always going for the younger son, because the younger son was the outcast one. That's why the Bible's always going for the barren woman, because a woman without children was outcast. That's why the Bible's always favoring The ugly daughter. Why? Because the ugly daughter is actually the line of Christ where Jesus ultimately gets born from. Leah, not Rachel, the beautiful one. You see? Jesus is always going for the Samaritans. So now he goes to Samaria and goes he, this pure Jewish man, the true Jew, goes to the impure woman impure in every way, outcast in every way, to transform her into the life of Christ. Isn't that amazing? She's accepted. She's known by Jesus. Jesus had to go see her. That's why Jesus is the greater Jacob. That's why he's the greater Isaac. All other ancient and modern fairy tales begin with what? He begins with a woman who is like Rachel, a woman who is like Rebecca, who is beautiful and fair and pure, and they're waiting this Prince Charming who's going to come and rescue her in distress. But the Bible, that's why the gospel, is the anti-fairy tale. That's why I can make it real. That's why it's good. That's why it's good news. Because Prince Charming, the most perfect man who ever walked the earth, doesn't go to the fair maiden but goes to the unfair maiden, goes to the impure woman, goes to the sinner, the broken, the lost. That means the only prerequisite to getting living water is what? You say, I'm thirsty. I'm impure. I'm broken. I'm lost. I'm confused. When you pray, I don't know what you pray about. Most people, we pray about the things that we want and we pray about the things that are good, we very rarely come to Christ and complain about our brokenness and the broken things that are done to us. That's what this woman is dialoguing with Jesus about. That's what Jesus addresses and approaches, her brokenness. Can you do that? The gospel is the ultimate Prince Charming who comes to the rescue of the ultimately impure, ultimately unacceptable, ultimately outcast person to make them pure and beautiful in his sight. That is an amazing thing. Verse 19, the woman says, you're a prophet. I'm talking theology. Where is worship? Jesus says, listen, it's not that you don't need a temple. The Holy Spirit is coming, a time is coming, and now is. Anytime you see the word time, it is the word hour in in Greek in the book of John. And anytime you see the word hour or time in the Gospel of John, he's referring to the cross. The cross is coming. A time will come when now you will be able to worship God wherever you are, whoever you are, you need a temple. You need a center. Everyone's got a temple. Everyone's got a center. Everyone's got a husband. The thing is, you've been, worship, you've been investing it in the wrong place, in the wrong people, and that's why you're thirsting. I am the temple. I am the sacrifice. Through me, you will find access. Through me, you will become acceptable. You will be worthy. The seventh man, perfection, completion. How does it happen? On the cross, Jesus says, I am thirsty. I thirst he wasn't just talking about the physical thirst. Because if he was talking about the physical thirst, then he would be saying, I'm in pain. The nails in my hands, the nail on my feet, I'm in pain. I'm suffering the crown of thorns. But he says, of all the things that he could have uh, complained about, he says, I thirst. Because it was more than just a physical thirst. Jesus Christ was ailing and suffering because what he says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The center of my worship, my worship, my water, my living water has left me. That's what he's saying, has departed from me. And I am forsaken and I am dry and I am thirsting and my body and my soul are burning up in torment. I'm suffering hell. What is hell? Complete separation from God. God has forsaken me. He said, I am suffering hell. My body and my soul are crying out for God and there is no God. There is no, my soul is seeking after God and God has left me. That's what he says. I'm burning up. I'm in torment. My soul longs for God. I'm disoriented. I'm suffocating. I have no access. I'm thirsting. I'm crying out for God. I need living water. But it is gone. It is gone. And when they stabbed him with the spear, out flowed blood and water. And he did it for me and he did it for you. Jesus Christ was forsaken so that you could be accepted. Jesus Christ was abandoned so that you could be accepted, brought in, and loved. Jesus Christ was disowned so that you could be adopted. Jesus Christ died alone, completely alone, cosmically alone, so that you will never be alone. In Jesus, every form of love, to the greatest degree, he scaled the heights of Calvary and he descended the depths of hell for you. Do you see that? If you do, that is the end of your thirsting. Because your job won't do that for you, you see. Your job will make, you dem- will make demands of you and make you labor and sweat and work and thirst. Your children can't do that for you because your children have, are broken and they have many demands and so they're constantly demanding, constantly craving. They cannot fill you. Your spouse cannot do that for you because your spouse is broken. Your spouse is has more sin because they've lived longer and as a result they're constantly broken and needy. You can't do that for another person because you are broken. You have needs and you have demands. And that will make that person thirst, especially if you force and manipulate them to put their lives hidden in you. Do you get that? You can't do that. What you need is Jesus Christ, a perfect lover who will transact for you, give you his righteousness, and take away your sin. That is living water. That is new life. That's salvation. Jesus Christ on the cross, when you see that, there is your worth. Questioning your worth, questioning your purpose, questioning your significance, there it is. Only that can break you free of your idols, reorient you to a new center. Look at the woman. She runs back to the very people that she was avoiding because of her brokenness. Why? Because she's no longer broken. She's no longer broken. She's healed. It's already and not yet. She's already healed. And now she will serve. And now she will grow. And yes, she will live a more moral life. Of course. But it's not... That's not, a new life is not a new morality. It's the heart that drives it. She's accepted, therefore she obeys. If you obey so that you will be accepted, you will thirst for the rest of your life. But this woman is accepted, and therefore she obeys. Do you see that? Do you see that? If it can happen to her, it can happen to you. If it can heal her, it can heal you. If it can redeem her, it can redeem you. Do you believe it? If you say, oh, I'm trying to do this, I'm trying to believe, then you don't believe. You know, you don't believe. You ever drive on a road and you realize your eyes are getting bad? Some of us dangerously do that, and you look out at the sign, and they say, do you see that sign? It's so obvious to other people, but then you're like, you don't realize until then that your eyes have gone bad, and you squint, and you you still can't make it out. You say, I'm trying to see. Do you see then? No. In John chapter 3, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says, if you behold Christ, he will be raised up like the serpent, the bronze serpent in the desert, and those who behold him will look and live. Stop trying. It's the end of trying. Just come in your aloneness and brokenness. Dialogue and inquire and get personal with Christ. Do business with God. Now is the time and you can think, make him personal. And when you conclude that he is I am for you, broken for you, then you will be healed, and you will never thirst again. Do you believe that? Let's pray.